Hey everyone, it's Elise and I'm back for the last episode of season two. So thank you so much for joining me again and thank you for being patient. You know what, sometimes you just don't realize how much you need a break. So it was really nice just to relax and spend time with family, virtually. <laughs> so I decided that I really would love to revisit some of the places and the stories that I've talked about. I'm hoping to do another one in season three, especially because a lot of the places that we've talked about have either been shut down or are running at a very limited capacity. So that makes it really tough to get an update, especially for the ones that I talked about this season, as really they haven't had the opportunity to have more experiences yet. So that's why I'm hoping as more of them open back up or have more hours, hopefully this year, um, that we'll get some more updates coming in. That being said, I did get some great updates, especially from our first and second episodes in season one. As I said with the Bellevue Underground Mine and with Haunted Walk, there are ways that you guys can help and can donate to some of these places to keep them going during this tough time. It's really hard out there for a lot of businesses and a lot of places that are especially linked to the tourism. So if you're able to, if you have the means, I highly encourage you to donate or find some way, order from their gift shop or anything like that so that we don't lose these places permanently. I'm already working on season three and as always, accepting listener suggestions and stories. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me at realscarypodcast at gmail.com, through Facebook or Instagram at realscarypodcast, or also through my website at realscarypodcast.ca. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. So the first update I'm going to start with is one of my all-time favorite locations. This is from Season 1, Episode 5, Haunted Homes Part 2. This is Point Ellis House of Victoria, BC. So I did hear back from the home's visitor services coordinator, Janine. She did have a little update to give us about the home, and it comes from the personal experience of their curatorial assistant, who spends a lot of time in the home. So this home, you might remember, is where a tour group had come and were waiting for the guide who was finishing up some stuff outside. And she actually forgot about them, and when they came back out about an hour later, she apologized profusely, and they said, well, the woman inside showed us around. It was great. It was a great tour. And they described her as the daughter of the original family that lived at Point Ellis House many, many years ago who had passed away. So I hope that jogs your memory. So in this location, there are many light sensitive artifacts. So when not working in a room, the lights will be turned off. When this employee is finished for the day, she always makes sure to turn off the lights in the house before locking up. Frequently, upon her return the following day, one of the lamps in the drawing room is always on, 
It's the same one every single time. They have, of course, been trying to find a reasonable explanation for why this would be occurring, but have yet to come up with one. The lamp is behind a lounging couch, and the only theory they've come up with is that one of the spirits maybe needs a light for reading at night. I like that theory. (laughs) She also sent along a couple of photos of the room and the lamp in question. There are also some other updates about programming and events that they've been able to do during this pandemic, so if you'd like to read about those and of course see those pictures, please check out the blog at realscarypodcast.ca. And thank you so much to Janine and the staff at Point Ellis House. The next update comes all the way from Season 1, Episode 2, Fernie, BC. So they have been able to continue their tours this year with some new restrictions, and the tour has been a little bit shorter due to some renovations happening in one of the locations. Now, Lindsay did send me a couple of new stories. They are from Ingram Block and City Hall. So thank you so much, Lindsay. So Ingram Block is a two-story building on 2nd Avenue. There is a small plaque near the top of the building that reads Ingram 1910. William Ingram was a very well-known and important figure in the local community, and his building was sort of a one-stop shop, kind of catch-all place. It had a barbershop, pool room, bowling alley, lunch counter, cigar store, and also held boxing and wrestling matches on the top floor. There are even some rumors that the basement had a tunnel leading to the nearby brothel. Ingram was very well-liked in the community and known by everyone in town. Every night when he would lock up his business at 7 p.m., he would walk home the same way down Victoria Avenue. On November 21st, 1939, someone was lurking. He was about a block away from his house when someone came upon him and hit him about the head with an iron pipe. This fractured his skull. Now his attackers fled and surprisingly, Ingram didn't fall to the ground, but managed to stagger home. He would ultimately die in hospital five days later. Three local young men were arrested. Two were acquitted, but there was a trial for the third. While in the cells in the courthouse basement, he attempted suicide but was saved with a massive blood transfusion. He was eventually sentenced to death, But, at an appeal, he would be acquitted as well. So in the end, no one was held accountable for Ingram's murder. Now, in more present times, apparently a local artist had a studio on the top floor. He installed a convex mirror at the top of the stairs so he could see people coming and going. One afternoon when he came in, he locked the door and was getting ready to paint. He heard the sound of a key in the door at the bottom of the stairs, and then the door that he knew was locked opened and then slammed shut. He then heard slow and heavy footfalls coming up the stairs. So he looked into the convex mirror, expecting to see someone coming, but no one was there. So that's pretty spooky. There were some other businesses and offices in this building, and in a music store, employees would report strange shadowy shapes and the thick smell of cigar smoke. It would be really interesting to know if that music store was obviously in the part that had a cigar store. 
The next place that Lindsay told me about is City Hall. In the council chambers, employees and cleaning staff have seen the figure of a woman in a long black skirt coming out of the chambers. She is also described as having a white blouse and hair done up in a turn-of-the-century style. I love the accounts that give so much detail like this because I feel like you can picture this woman. One employee recalls that they were in the building one night at about 7 p.m. She was about to walk into the council chambers when she stopped at the entrance because the air in the doorway was ice cold. She described it as like standing in front of a walk-in freezer. She felt like the doorway itself had changed from an ordinary dark room to a pitch-black hole. She got the overwhelming feeling that something within that darkness was watching her. The hair on her arms and the back of her neck stood up and her heart began to pound. She said, okay, I'm going now. And she backed down the hallway like you would from a dangerous animal. She didn't turn her back to the doorway until she was well around the corner. Now cleaning staff is usually cleaning in the early evening, but sometimes the council meetings can go late and they might not start cleaning until 10 to 10.30. They have reported furniture and objects moving on their own. One cleaner who was in the building for years said that when she would clean the meeting room, she would move all the chairs to clean underneath the table. Sometimes she would have to leave the room to go get something or to use the restroom. And when she would come back, all of the chairs would be moved back under the table. Many cleaners refused to work alone, and many actually ended up just quitting rather than risking the night cleaning shift. Now at City Hall, these strange noises and occurrences didn't just happen during the evening. There's a great story from an IT support tech who was working in the server room located under the stairs. He worked for a few moments and then came out and asked the receptionist, who is running up and down the stairs? She said, no one. Everyone's in their offices. She hadn't seen anyone go up or down the stairs. The technician went back to work and about 30 minutes later came out again. He told her there was definitely someone going up and down the stairs. The footsteps were loud and going up and down the stairs in a hurry, like someone was running from basement to first floor and back again. Interestingly to note, this is the courthouse currently, but at the turn of the century, this was the Crow's Nest Coal Company offices. During the Fernie fire, which I did talk about in the original Fernie episode, this building was a place of refuge for approximately 500 men, women, and children, as it was thought that it would be safe because of its concrete construction and position in the middle of the block. Now, this sadly wasn't completely true, as the buildings around it were on fire, and the wind was actually blowing flaming shingles from other buildings onto this roof. So volunteers were up on the roof with buckets of water, ready to put out any sparks that might land and ignite. The most efficient way was to have a bucket line going up to the roof. So some think that those footsteps could be the sounds of those volunteers forever ferrying buckets of water to the roof as fast as they could go. So those are some great additions to the Fernie locations. So thank you so much to Lindsay from the Fernie Museum and the whole team that put on these amazing ghost tours there. I can't stress enough how beautiful this town is in any weather condition, really. 
So if you're able to visit, please do and be sure to check out this awesome tour. Now, the next update that I can't wait to dive into is Mandy. So this is the object that really started everything off for this podcast. Season one, episode one, I talked about the world famous doll known as Mandy, who lives in the museum in Quenelle, British Columbia. So I actually received a message about Mandy over Instagram from a man named Kevin. And he said that his mom was actually the person at the Quenelle Museum to do the photos of Mandy when she first arrived. So she ended up forging a very special relationship with this doll that was actually quite concerning to him and his sister. So here's his story. So Kevin was 13 at the time that his mom was working at the museum in the summers. A woman showed up and handed the doll over to the museum saying she didn't want her. That she could hear children's footsteps and crying. Kevin did note that he had never heard the story of the window that I told in the Mandy episode. Kevin's mom was a single mom and would stay late at the museum taking hundreds of photos of Mandy. And she said that Mandy did not like to be left alone. He said that she started taking some of his sister's baby items to the museum to give to Mandy and that that is where the little lamb came from. It was his sister's. He said that his mom always wanted he and his sister to come to the museum to keep Mandy company. But Kevin says, in all capitals, I hated that doll. He said that her eyes really did follow you around. It was hard for him because he was just a kid, so he couldn't do too much about it. But when the summer season was coming to an end, his mom wanted to bring Mandy home for the winter. And it was at this point he knew he had to do something and threatened to move to Seattle to live with his father if she did bring Mandy home. He said that she ultimately did not bring her home, and things appeared to go back to normal for a while. Kevin said that it was like she was possessed around Mandy, and his mother was never fully the same. Now, Kevin did end up moving to Seattle and came back to visit in 2016. He and his wife went to the museum after he had told her of Mandy, And he said that the same feelings he experienced over 25 years ago came flooding back as soon as he saw her. So thank you so much for that update, Kevin. That's so interesting. And I don't blame you. I wouldn't have wanted Mandy to stay at my house either. (laughs) So now we have another piece to the Mandy story as well. And that is where the lamb stuffy came from. Now the updates on Mandy are not over. I had the pleasure of connecting with Mike, who is a member of a group called Paranormal Road Trippers. And it turns out that they were there during that investigation that I spoke about in Mandy's episode. So he was kind enough to answer some of my questions and give us some more insight into that night. So it was in January of 2016 when Mike first met Mandy. He was working with a previous team and the opportunity arose to go to Quinnell, and investigate Mandy. At the time, Mike said that he downplayed his opinion of haunted objects, not really understanding how an object could have so much pull on someone. He says that looking back, he's experienced haunted objects many times through his life, but it was his meeting with Mandy that brought all of this to the surface. While setting up their gear, he witnessed another member of the team in a staring trance with Mandy and her case. 
He said that he looked like a statue, kneeling there, transfixed on the doll. Mike and the other team members were calling his name and tapping him, even snapping their fingers in front of his face, and he was unresponsive. A few minutes later, he seemed to snap out of it. He stood up and ran to the parking lot where he vomited. He didn't realize what had happened. Now Mike, being young and smug, his words not mine, (laughs) went in and asked Mandy to show herself to him or prove that she was there. So right before they began filming, he told his team he was just going to go outside for fresh air and a snack. The next thing that Mike recalls is being shook awake by the team's psychic, and he was standing next to the highway. He was witnessed as walking in a trance-like state toward the highway. Now they had to intervene before he got there. Mike says he doesn't remember any of this, and there was even a bite out of his snack that he doesn't remember eating. He says that this is the most messed up experience of his paranormal career, and at that moment he gained a ton of respect for these objects and the power they can possess. So thankfully, there were other people there who saw him. That's really scary. Mike didn't have any other experiences with anything else in the museum. We also spoke about a World War II uniform and a baby walker. Mike says that one of the other team members saw what appeared to be the spirit of a soldier in the World War exhibit. So I'm going to leave my talk with Mike of other haunted places for a future episode because this group is awesome um, and has many, many stories. So the Paranormal Road Trippers are a team that take their investigations on the road to unknown haunts and abandoned towns, historic sites, abandoned mines, and forgotten graveyards. They also like to acquire and investigate haunted objects, and they work with a haunted museum in Seattle called Spooked in Seattle. So I'm definitely going to want to know much more about this. It sounds really, really interesting. So in the meantime, if you want to check out the Paranormal Road Trippers, please follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and check out their YouTube channel as well. All can be found by simply searching for The Paranormal Road Trippers, and I will be linking everything in the blog and on my socials, of course. So thank you so much to Mike and the rest of the Paranormal Road Trippers. I can't wait to work together in the future. So that brings me to the end of my updates. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys have an incredible new year and I will see you all again in a few months. I'm already working on season three, as I said, and it's going to be a kick-ass season. As always, be sure to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Real Scary Podcast. When I'm not releasing episodes, sometimes I don't post as much, but definitely check out those two places because that is where I will talk about the upcoming season and you'll get specific dates and things like that. And also be sure to check out my blog at realscarypodcast.ca. And with that, this is your friendly neighborhood host, Elise.